بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ ان دا نیم آف اللہ دا گریشیس دی ایور مرسیفل می پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز آف اللہ بی اپون یو ٹوڈے از منڈے دی ایٹھ آف جنوری ٹوینٹی ٹوینٹی فور دا ٹائم از سیون او تھری اے ایم اینڈ یو لسٹنگ اینڈ ڈاکٹر شکیل احمد لائیو فرام دی ساؤتھ لنڈن اسٹوڈیوز آف وائس آف اسلام ایز از دا نام وی ہیو براٹ ٹو ٹاپکس فار یو ٹوڈے سو دا فرسٹ ٹاپک از اباؤٹ دا نیو ایئر کلین اپ ایکسرسائز Uh, which has uh, become an annual event conducted by the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association. So they clean up the streets um, after the um, partygoers actually uh, leave their debris um, after the New Year celebrations. Uh, uh, so we shall talk about that uh, starting 7.30 a.m. And from about 8.30 a.m. we'll talk about the uh, the war orphans. So the, the world of... Uh, sorry, the World Day of War Orphans 2024 is being celebrated. So we shall discuss that uh, from 8.30 a.m. onwards. Those are the two topics uh, of the morning. And with that, um, a very warm welcome, Dr. Shakil. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you and all our listeners. And Happy New Year to you as, as well, because uh, this is the first time we're meeting after the New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Right. Um, Uh, as is, um, again, the norm, let me um, go straight to the headlines appearing in the newspapers um, this morning. So uh, the Financial Times this morning leads on the U.S. investigation into how a section of a new Boeing 737 jet operated by Alaska Airlines blew out mid-flight on Friday, noting that airlines in Turkey and Panama have now grounded their planes for inspections too. Closer to home over a photo of a waterlogged uh, road in Sussex. The paper warns it's not over yet as flood risks remain across England. Flooding in England also dominates the front page of the Eye newspaper, which says the government is being accused of a slow response on drainage and defence um, and flood defences. Looking at the forthcoming US election, the paper reports that Barack Obama is being brought in to boost the campaign of Joe Biden, who was, of course, his vice president when he sat in the White House. The Daily Star is already looking past England's flood misery to a big freeze. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. It is a chilly morning. Uh, the Daily Star is already looking past England's flood misery to a big freeze, forecasting a 12-day chill and whiteouts. Um, uh, that is the effect that uh, you know even reading the news of chill has on you. Uh, Post office victims will get justice, declares Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the headline on the Metro front page as efforts continue to clear the names of hundreds of postmasters convicted in the post office horizon scandal. The Guardian quotes the Conservative MP Danny Kruger as saying his party faces obliteration at the coming general election because the public believes that things have got worse in the 13 years it has governed. The paper's latest take on the post office scandal is that the organization is suspected of wrongly persecuting um, and prosecuting uh, dozens more operators who took part in a pilot scheme of the faulty horizon system. The Times says the mental Ill health is driving a surge in disability claims and predicts that the cost of disability benefits will rise by more than 50% by 2030. The paper reports that victims of the post office scandal believe Sir Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat leader who was Postal Affairs Minister from 2010 to 2012, has questions to answer 
over his role in the fiasco. Together we must end this horror now, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Mirror shouts from its front page as it promotes a campaign to stop youth knife crime, which is led by actor Idris Elba. He says he can't say, stay silent as more young lives are lost to these brutal, heartless crimes. The Telegraph says London Mayor Sadiq Khan bows to rail unions by offering a bumper pay deal to avoid tube strikes. It also quotes a lawyer for victims of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein, who is urging the FBI to release CCTV footage he believes could show the Duke of York at the late sex offender's mansion. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics, um, the first one of which we shall start at 7.30am. And uh, that is about the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association's New Year cleanup exercise done on the 1st of January across the country. And then from 8.30 onwards, we shall talk about the World Day of War Orphans 2024. You can, uh, this is a live show, so please do uh, join in by calling us at 0208-687-7878. Our X handle is Voice of Islam UK, so please do join in the discussion by, um, by choosing any one of these two modes. Uh, moving on to um, uh, other news and, and probably um, uh, something more along the scientific lines, uh, Dr. Shaquille, you and I, uh, before going live, we're talking about this uh, uh, this news that you um, saw in the in the newspaper about um, uh, about quantum physics. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Yes, that's right. It's uh, from the Science Resonance Foundation. They had published this news item just a few days ago, and it's a very interesting discovery. We know the quantum physics basic principles are about the interface between energy and matter. But what they have had um, theoretically talked about for some time is a concept of quantum entanglement. And this is a very thought-provoking idea of modern physics. Two particles, basically, that are spatially well separated in space-time, they display a correlation among their properties and an act of measurement on one, so some kind of an interference in a lab on one particle, can in fact affect the other particle instantaneously without there being an obvious communication channel. So that's the fascination of it. It's a very, mm. it's a remarkable observation. It's been considered theoretically for a number of years, but they've been able to uh, enact it in lab artificially uh, more recently. And the, the, uh, one of the Chinese experimental physicists, his name's Jean Weipan, uh, applied this quantum entanglement principle and displayed its distribution to two locations that were separated about 1,200 kilometers on the surface of Earth. Right. So uh, just to explain it in layman terms, so this was a, uh, a microatomic part which was um, uh, which was disturbed, which was moved uh, in a lab at, at one point in China somewhere. And the effect of which was observed in, in a microatomic particle of a similar type, 1,200 miles apart. Kilometers apart. Kilometers that apart. That is right. And they've, they've replicated this. 
this idea has been used in technology as well. So it has led to what is called as quantum bits, qubits. And you and I know that the newer form of computers are coming out or have come out, which are called quantum computers. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been used, but there the particles are sitting very next to each other. Right. And what they're now talking about is the concept of entanglement, which is affecting particles that are very distant away from the principal uh, area of interference or experimentation. And theoretically, they're saying that it is possible for us to conduct an experimental manipulation of microatomic particles on Earth and have its impact perceived on another celestial body, let's say the moon, where we may set up an establishment or a scientific lab. Um, Ein Albert Einstein also theoretically considered this idea but was overall skeptical about it. He used the expression spooky action at a distance yeah. uh, in his writings. But in fact, part of the theory behind this work is in fact his work on energy and mass interconversion, you know, the E equals MC squared Correct. principle. So um, even though he was skeptical, but his work has contributed to development of this science. Right. So essentially, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you've mentioned E is equal to MC squared. So what we're talking about here is uh, a mass, really, of a subatomic particle, which is then converted into energy, which then goes and affect something 1,200 kilometers away. Yes. And there's an additional um, conceptualization here. They call it an exceptional point. So if the exceptional point being the area where the energy generated through the interfering of this microatomic particle mm -hmm. is focused. If the exceptional point of this particle converges with the exceptional point of several other particles sitting a lot of distances away, mm. then this entanglement process can be even more instantaneous, even though it happens in a microseconds at the same time, but it can be even more effective, more pronounced, and in time terms, even more quicker. Wow. Okay. So, so, so what are the um, scientific um, uh, sort of, uh, why should we be excited about this? Well, I mean, it's a very exciting breakthrough, I think. Mm -hmm. I felt excited when I read oh, about so, it. So do and I, yeah. What they're, what they're saying is that we are developing technology of influencing matter mm -hmm. while sitting away from it. Sure. You know, imagine the implications. Hundreds of kilometers so, away and potentially thousands of kilometers away. Right. And like I say, in another part of our universe. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition, what excited me was that our concept of prayer, you know, when right. we pray, yeah. we know that uh, if we pray with emotions, then our neurophysiology and the chemistry in the brain is affected. That has already been demonstrated through our neuroimaging studies. Mm. And if we influence the microatomic particles of the chemicals in our brain, and our focus of the prayer is about a certain item, mm. and it fits in, in accordance with the laws of nature, mm. whether they are psychic, logical principles in nature or whether they are about the existence of matter or whatever types of laws of physics, laws of nature, then put, this could explain how the prayer in fact works yeah. by influencing 
another thing happening to another person or another environment mm. through the power of prayer. Right. And you and I know that the Holy Quran teaches us that the prayer is a very powerful tool. Mm. And we are taught that God Almighty listens to prayers said in a sincere manner by a person who otherwise lives the life in accordance with the laws of nature or laws of religion, which sure. are in our view the same. So um, I found it a very fascinating. Uh, it is discovery. fascinating indeed, absolutely, Doctor. And, <clears throat> and thank you very much for bringing this up today. So essentially, you know, to explain this in um, in scientific terms, in terms of this, uh, this theory that uh, scientists have come up with, what we're saying is that when we pray, um, we we're able to release energy in uh, in a specified direction, and that energy is then able to affect uh, a mass. Uh, or you know whatever target that we um, we have considered in our prayers. I mean that's a possible explanation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Through this concept of entanglement, mm-hmm. that the scientists are now uh, beginning to replicate even hundreds of kilometers or more than a thousand kilometers away. Hundred percent, absolutely. And and uh, yeah, prayer absolutely. But I think um, for um, for agnostics, I think this could also explain how hypnosis works. Uh, um, that is something that is uh, being used in psychotherapy uh, in the in in the area of psychotherapy as well. Um, so um, yeah, I think this is this is very fascinating and very 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 exciting, even in in your area of study, which is psychotherapy. Uh, yes, psychiatry. Now hypnosis is also interesting, but with the hypnosis, the subject that you have is uh, sitting next it's to right you. There. Yeah, correct. Is, is right there in front of you mm-hmm. and you are communicating with them through words. Right. So you make a powerful suggestion. You have brought the person or the patient into a semi-awake state and psychologically you have brought them into a state of submission to suggestion. Mm. And when you make the suggestion, the person's mind and the body begins to recognize it as the task to carry on. So this is the gist of how hypnosis works. And you can use hypnosis in in, uh, conditions like if somebody wants to quit smoking or drinking, hypnosis has shown very positive results. Similarly, in conditions where there is dissociative states, where a person shifts from reality temporarily, you can help them understand why they need to do this. So, yes, hypnosis is also a very fascinating area of work. It's used less and less in the modern practice of psychiatry. But I, okay. when we have, when I was training and I was doing this, I, I found it very fascinating as well. And um, uh, I've been actually to, to, to certain events outside um, um, the field of psycho, um, psychiatry. And, you, you know, these um, uh, professional um, uh, hypnotists what so this one guy that uh, I went this event to was able to bend uh, a, a whole a, a very thick table stone which he asked me to check before he actually did that but just looking at it but just focusing on it he was able to bend it um, and 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 he did some some other things like that as well and that actually reminds me of uh, of an incident actually from the life of uh, promised Messiah may peace be on him in which uh, it's narrated that uh, one of his companions actually said that um, uh, they were out somewhere and he um, he saw somebody 
riding on a uh, on a cart, and he said that I could actually make this person fall. So the whole, so the promised Messiah didn't counter him by saying that no no you're lying or that's just not possible. He said, what benefit is that going to be to mankind? So in fact, you know, he he sort of countered it by saying that you know you should only use your powers for the benefit of mankind, um, and yeah, I guess so. All this you know quantum entanglement theory that we're talking about is you know is very fascinating and I think explains a lot of events which um, uh, which we were not able to to before. That that is correct, and I think you've also touched on a very fundamental principle of scientific discovery, that it is our responsibility to use it for the benefit of mankind. Mm. That again is a Quranic injunction that our works, our gain of knowledge, our pondering on the principles of nature must be done with the intention of trying to acquire knowledge for the benefit of mankind. Anything other than this is destructive for society. We have seen the damaging effect of science being misused. And um, so that is also, um, I think, a very important principle for all people who are involved in scientific research and newer discoveries to keep in mind. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's a very firm belief here in the Amity Muslim community as well, because everything has 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 benefits um, as well as uh, negatives and a very good example these days is of social media and um, and internet. Yeah, absolutely. So, so internet can be used um, massively for our benefit to gain knowledge, but it has um, many ill effects as well and it's up to us to to make sure that it's uh, is used for the for the right reasons. It reminds me that our um, the current spiritual head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, he's constantly reminding us in so many events, and you and I would have listened to him, to all the students, and when he's giving prizes to those who uh, achieve some distinctions in the field of science, and yes. that we must focus on working for benefit of people. Mm. And he encourages us to travel to other countries to go and help and teach and guide and, you know, support infrastructure in, in developing parts of the world. So you're right, the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim youth and people try to, in their humble way, we are a small organization, but we keep trying. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. Shaquille, for, for bringing that up today. This is very, very fascinating, very interesting, and I'm sure um, there is lots more to come uh, out of this uh, particular discovery in the uh, in the days and months and years to come. Um, in other news, um, uh, The Guardian talks about um, uh, the uh, visit of uh, Mr. Blinken uh, to the Middle East, and um, it says that uh, Gaza's military, uh, sorry, Ministry of Health, um, now says that uh, 22,835 Palestinians have been killed by yesterday, actually, and another 58,416 reportedly injured. So that brings the total to about 80,000, more than 80,000 people who've been affected. Uh, as a result, as a direct result of this war, and um, as a lot of other aid agencies have been saying, the actual total might be even higher than this because a lot of people are buried under the rubble and uh, because there has been ongoing fighting and the bodies have not been able to um, be taken out. 
the figures uh, that I quoted do not distinguish between combatants and civilians, um, but an estimated 70% are women and children. Um, and according to one estimate, 7,000 more at least are missing and are more likely dead, as I said, probably still buried under the rubble. Um, Israel's fine account uh, for Hamas's 7th October massacre is now 1,139, uh, with a total of 685 civilians and 373 members of the security forces and 71 foreigners. Uh, the deaths in Israel since the beginning, uh, the total to about uh, were announced at about 1,200. Uh, there are 36 children as well in the total number that I just um, quoted. Um, Germany is ready to allow sales of um, Eurofighters jets to Saudi Arabia. It's uh, been announced. Germany, Britain, Italy and Spain jointly built the jet and each can actually veto the deal. But um, it seems that it will most likely go ahead. Germany has previously blocked arms sales to Riyadh since uh, the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. That includes blocking a deal for 48 Eurofighter jets signed by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in London. Um, Germany's foreign minister noted that Saudi Arabia and Israel had not renounced their policy of normalization since the war broke out. The fact that Saudi Arabia is now intercepting missiles fired by the Houthis at Israel underlines this, and we are grateful for that. This has been reported by AFP. Uh, and that, uh, Dr. Shaquille, reminds me of, um, um, again, the um, the threat of escalation in, in the war that... Uh, Again, His Holiness has been warning us uh, uh, since the start of this conflict on October the seventh, but also uh, for many decades now that this, that, uh, you know, that this fire actually, uh, which is raging in the Middle East at the moment, uh, also in Europe on the other side between Ukraine and Russia, can actually spread very quickly. And that's very worrying situation um, in in the world. The world is becoming divided. The um, segregation, political segregation between different groups, they're trying to strengthen their own alliances. And um, I think there is dire need for people to reconcile. And I think this notion that uh, we're going to sort this problem by might and we will have to uh, force the other party to submission is a very dangerous uh, connotation. And imagine if it became nuclear conflict. Mm. That's the worry, isn't it? And that is what we are reminded of, that it could be disastrous for the humankind, for the planet. Um, according to some estimates, more than 50% of world population could die if a world war, nuclear world conflict took place. Yes, absolutely. So it, it's really, uh, it gives you shudders when you think about it. 100%. I was actually reading up a little bit on that. And a nuclear war would not only harm people as a result of the uh, direct effects of a nuclear bomb, which are also threefold. So there is um, there is the fireball initially, then um, there is the nuclear wind, and then uh, there is a shockwave, and then finally there is radiation. Yes. So, um, so there's that. But then also, um, 
what scientists now predict is that if a war actually breaks out, a nuclear war, um, and a certain number of warheads are used, it will lead to a nuclear winter across the world. And that could mean, you know, that could mean devastation, that could mean starvation, that could mean that... Devastation of crops. Absolutely. Entire agriculture supply, global supply could be ruined. And um, that in itself, so it's it's not just the immediate effect of the um, of a nuclear war. It's really what comes after for a few years, literally, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is, um, as you said, very, very dangerous and very terrifying. So may Allah protect us from um, uh, from that. May Allah give um, sense um, uh, and wisdom to our lead to our leaders all across the world. I mean, to, um, to actually take a step back, to reflect on how dangerous the situation is instead of, you know, this jingoistic behavior that we see everywhere, instead of this injustice that we see everywhere, instead of this hypocrisy that we see everywhere these days. Mm. Uh, you know, sense prevails, better sense prevails, and people are able to, um, uh, to think about the, uh, the larger good uh, of, the man, of yeah. mankind. To, to be honest, those principles that you've mentioned could turn the situation around. Yeah. If very, people, very if, quickly, if pol- political yeah. systems yeah. became just, 100%. that's all they need, right. rather than greedy or uh, jingoistic. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Thank you very much. Right, so that uh, concludes our um, section on the news uh, appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics once again. So the first topic, which we shall be starting um, imminently, is about the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association's youth communities, New Year Cleanup. Uh, And then the second topic, which we shall start around 8.30am, is about the World Day of War Orphans 2024. The number to call, should you want to um, join the discussion, is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. Um, moving swiftly on to the first topic, um, Dr. Shakil, would you like to introduce our listeners to the topic? So the 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 subject of the story it's about the New Year Street Up cleaning by the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, Youth Division. <clears throat> the Youth Division of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community gathers on the first of January every year to clean the streets of the cities where they live. Uh, while, and this is post-New Year celebrations on the streets the previous night. Uh, according to an estimate, littering costs the UK approximately $660 million annually. And even though the government and local authorities are making significant efforts to address this issue, uh, from a religious perspective, cleanliness and caring for our local communities are fundamental aspects of Islamic faith. And with this in mind, our members commenced this year, like previous years, with a nationwide street cleaning. Now, I see this uh, littering as a symptom of multiple underlying issues. Of course, littering in itself is a problem. Mm. It's an issue of hygiene. Mm. And littering in principle is lack of regard to hygiene. But it is also a lack of regard to law of the country or sincerity to your environment. It is lack of regard towards others. If we throw waste food, 
then there is a risk of pests increasing or disease. Uh, and it's a lack of regard to our climate at a global level because when I've been to some of these uh, litter-picking New Year cleanup mm-hmm. uh, events, right. and I noticed that the majority of the litter, a significant chunk, is a single-use plastic. Mm. So, and it is also a sign of intoxicated minds having behaved in the way that they may not have behaved otherwise. Surely. And you and I know that alcohol and drugs are used much more Mm. on the New Year night or on any Mm. party nights. Mm. So overall, it it is a sign of many underlying social and uh, social behavior problems. Cleaning restores hygiene, of course. It cleans our environment. It demonstrates that we we are we are actually trying to demonstrate that not just supporting the cleanliness process, but that we are sincere to our environment and our country. Mm. We live here. We want to keep it clean. We don't want to see the, the streets to be littered and don't want to leave it just for the government to sort it out. Mm. We feel responsible for it. We are also demonstrating our sincerity to the environment this way, just like I've explained. And... These are the principles that are driven by the teachings of Islam. Right. So that's how this uh, situation, the, this event is um, brought about by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Right. Now, um, thank you very much uh, for that uh, introduction. Let me now go straight to our first guest for this segment, who is Mr. Shahab Sheikh. Uh, Mr. Shahab Sheikh is the deputy head within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community UK. Uh, for the department responsible for this New Year's Day cleanup uh, exercise. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum assalam, peace be on you. Thank you very much, Mr. Sheikh, for joining us. So if I can start by asking you, um, firstly, why do you do this exercise year on year? Um, This is one of the ways to show love for your country, wherever you live, obviously, you, you want that place to be clean and tidy. And uh, the Holy Prophet has said, love of one's country is part of uh, the faith. So this is one of the ways to show love for our country, obviously, where we're living. We, 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 we will never want it to be dirty or untidy. And this is also uh, a, a way to be integrated with the society. But many people say that Muslims don't integrate with the Western world properly, but this is one of our ways to to um, show that we do good things. Uh, we 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 enjoy the 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 positive aspects of uh, all the uh, teachings of Islam and other things to promote goodness in the society and be a part of that society and a a positive part of that society. Absolutely. And obviously, another aspect is to uh, introduce the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and Islam to the local people as well. Hmm. Sure. So, um, tell us about the, the the scope of this activity. So, you're responsible um, for running this um, this campaign, uh, really, across the country. So, tell us uh, how many locations did you cover this time, how many volunteers we're talking about, and also maybe uh, you know the the impact on local communities and how much litter is actually out there and how much did you actually have to clean up? Yeah, so um, we cover this um, 
uh, we do this campaign over the whole of the nation, um, and I think there, there were more than seventy uh, locations where where we carried out the cleanup, and there were like nearly eighteen hundred uh, volunteers who took part in um, this uh, uh, this year's new New Year's cleanup uh, session, and obviously this is. Uh, something we do every year, um, and um, I, I don't have the exact uh, figures at the moment how much litter we collected, but it was huge. It was a lot, obviously. You can, as as um, as we've just heard, uh, all the people go out doing parties um, for the New Year's Eve, and uh, not many of them just care for the litter. They, they leave the litter wherever um, they go. So we go out in the morning and clean up a lot of that, which is uh, which is um, a very very good uh, thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good good uh, way to start the new year. If you if you start um, the year in a good way, the chances are the, the whole year will be good as well. And how long has the Ahmadiyya community been doing this initiative? Well, this. Thing, the, the cleanliness and the the the, the aspect of cle- cleaning streets goes back to um, obviously the the times of the Holy Prophet and um, uh, in Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, the second um, uh, head of the uh, community has a Muslim uh, who was also the founder of uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association. He mentioned these aspects in uh, one of his schemes, which is uh, called Tariqa Jadid, to clean the streets. But on the New Year's Day uh, in the UK, we started it about 20 years ago. And um, since then, it's been um, happening every year. Uh, and it was obviously under the guidance of uh, our beloved Imam, Huzurek Taseyed Allah Ta'ala bin Aziz. And what is the purpose of getting together on the New Year's Day for street cleanup when there are other things you could do? So whose guidance um, gives you this initiative or this energy? Um, yeah, there are many things you can do, um, but we, cho- we choose to go out, start our New Year uh, in a way which is, uh, which is better for for ourselves and for the society as well. Um, obviously, we have some duties towards the environment and uh, our country, which we like to pay regard to. And um, uh, as I said, the, the Holy Prophet said, cleanliness is part of um, uh, our faith as well. So we tend to start the year in this way, that we uh, we do good to the society, we do good to the people of the community, and uh, it, it creates a sense of brotherhood and unity as well when we get together and do do such activities together. And um, <coughs> uh, under whose uh, guidance you ask? That that is obviously um, Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association always uh, follows the instructions of. Uh, um, Khalifa al uh, may Allah be his helper. And uh, these um, activities are obviously happening with his instruction and guidance. And uh, this gives us a chance to be part of his prayers as well. 
So there's a, an expression that the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, Association uses, Wakare Amal. Can you say something about that? So Wakare Amal means uh, the dignity of doing work with your hand, the dignity of labor or dignity of um, action with hand. Uh, this is something we do a lot. And um, uh, the idea is to no one should feel any um, uh, less valued in doing such work. Everyone should feel dignity in doing work with hand, be it clean, cleaning the streets or doing something else. We do quite a lot of karimas throughout the years. Uh, many of the uh, events that happen uh, within the MDM Muslim community, um, well, they they they, uh, they do um, include a lot of Ugariamal sessions. Right. Um, what sort of response do you get externally for uh, for this cleanup exercise? Is it generally do you find appreciated by the local communities? Is that well, something that's needed? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, I've been um, reading some posts over the social media in the uh, in the last few days. Um, because obviously this is uh, uh, shared on social media and um, external media also uh, publishes whatever we do. Um, so we, we, we get a very good response from the local people. Uh, and I was seeing some people saying they, they, these people have been doing these good things for many, many years. And they, they like it, obviously, because um, we're doing good for, the, for them and for the society. So uh, we're very welcomed by them. Right. And, are, there are some yeah. places where I've seen some external guests also join us uh, in this uh, New Year's cleanup sessions as well. Oh wow! Okay, right. So, so you do have uh, people from the local community actually yeah. uh, joining you guys, and uh, that's uh, that's pretty amazing, and that's great to hear. Right. Uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Mr. Shahab Sheikh, for joining us uh, this morning. You are the deputy head of the department, which looks after this uh, national cleanup exercise um, uh, all the best with uh, with the great effort uh, and the great work that you're doing may peace be with you you're very welcome have a good day thank you very much thank you very much so that was uh, Mr. Shahab Sheikh um, and what an excellent way to to really celebrate the dawn of a, of a new year by helping people rather than by spreading litter <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. And uh, interestingly, he said that if you begin the new year in a nice way, yeah, hopefully your yeah. year will pan out well. So I think that is true. But their efforts are based on Islamic teachings. Um, so the Holy Quran talks about Allah's love for those who keep themselves clean. Um, I, Prophet Muhammad, may peace be on him, saying that cleanliness is half of the faith and that implying that spirituality is linked with us keeping ourselves clean. Mm. And only with physical cleanliness, cleanliness can you get psychological cleanliness, cleanliness of the mind, which is required for spiritual development. So I think that, uh, yes, it is a very beautiful example of young people getting up and then starting the new year. And, and they begin very early. They begin at dawn, yeah, they, they don't wait for like after a hefty breakfast at 10 a.m. So sure. it, it's done after the morning prayers in the mosques. And that's, as you know, pre-dawn. Yeah. 
and then they go straight into this uh, project. So that it's it's all nice and clean by the time that uh, you know everybody else sort wakes of wakes up, up and yes. uh, it's it's already. Uh, done and dusted by then. And whether they think that there was no litter, so the party <laughs> goes are very well behaved. <laughs> yes, that's uh, and 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 probably that's why uh, that uh, <laughs> they probably do it year on year as well. This reminds me of a of of a uh, of a joke actually, a, a video which was circulated um, a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, this husband. Um, says to his wife, you know, this this table is a, is a magic table, and then wife goes, "How is this a magic table? I spread, you know, I spread litter every night on this table. You know, there there are um, plates and cups and whatnot uh, on this. I leave every night, and in the morning I come, and it's it's all clean. <laughs> it's a magic table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, so magic streets, <laughs> exactly magic streets, right? Okay, let me now go straight to our next guest, uh, who is Mr. Tala Ahmed Owusu Kunadu, uh, who has joined us all the way from Glasgow. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Waalaikum salam. So uh, you are the secretary for the dignity of. Uh, for a department called Dignity of Labor, and 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 for for anybody who's listening in, um, yes, we have a department within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community which is called the Dignity of Labor, and uh, you're part of that uh, in the Glasgow chapter of uh, the Ahmadiyya community. Uh, so tell us about uh, what you did in Glasgow um, uh, in the new year. So, um, so in. So on New Year's Day, um, they, um, there was a tahajjud that was performed, the voluntary prayers. Right. And then after Atfal, Qudam and Samansar took to the streets to clean up the streets in our neighborhood, especially because in Glasgow, um, our mosque is in, you know, the part of the Glasgow city. Right. Okay. And uh, how many volunteers were you able to get together to do this? So there's approximately um, around forty men. Uh, around forty men. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's uh, that, that is a large contingent. Yeah. And and was there a lot of litter to uh, to pick up? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of letter because it's Glasgow, a big city. So there's obviously going to be a lot of letter about to pick up, and it's also close to Glasgow city centre. So yeah. And what role do your young members play in this cleanup? Did you have uh, school age children with you? Yes. So yes. So you know, we if our Cleaning up the streets is a big part of our faith because the Holy Prophet said that cleanliness is half of our faith. So so by cleaning up, you know, we are honored to do this because it's a big command of the Holy Prophet وسلم, that we are obeying. And so this motivates us to do it everywhere, every year to get the blessings of Allah. And then also... All those people who are sleeping, when they see what we're doing, you know, they, they, you know, get to know about the community and start 
praising God and then we also gain respect from them and also we get the blessings of Allah for doing this work. So yeah, it's a very um, blessed thing to do. It, it is definitely a blessed thing to do. So Jazakallah for your comments. Thank you very much, Mr. Dela, for joining us uh, this morning. Um, all the best with uh, all the excellent work that you and uh, your colleagues are doing um, up in uh, Glasgow. So that was Mr. Tala Ahmed Uwusu uh, Kunadu, who is um, a member of the Glasgow chapter of the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, um, community. And he was talking to us about the uh, the work that they were actually able to do there in um, in Glasgow. Uh, a couple of questions I wanted to uh, to put to you, Dr. Shakil. So um, uh, the the first one is you mentioned uh, a, a little while ago that uh, a cleanliness of the um, the environment actually can lead to um, or does inspire cleanliness of uh, the mind and cleanliness of the soul as well. How are the, the body and mind interconnected? Well, firstly, they are situated in the same physical framework. Mm. So if I'm sitting here, so my body and my, my mind sits inside my body. Mm. So there's a physical connection. Right. But my body's behavior affects the way I think and my thoughts influence how I'm going to behave this is commonly understood science of social behavior and human psychology. So the two are interlinked. But then the human psyche is understood to form the basic platform on which we relate to what is metaphysical and what is outside of our dom physical domain. Hmm. So my relationship with my understanding of nature and how it works and where it originated from and then extend this argument further to what was the source of all this creation of natural existence. Mm. That relationship of my mind is going to be based on my psychological stability and framework. Mm. So, and that is spiritual realm when I'm trying to understand and communicate or think about the creation of nature and the creator of nature. That's spiritual. So my body, my psyche, and my spirituality become like a continuum uh, on a spectrum. And promised Messiah, salam, may mm. peace be on him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, he has written about this relationship between the physical, the psychological, and the spiritual. And he says that you cannot develop spirituality without having a clean mind. And I think it is understandable even at a lay language, although his words are very philosophical when mm. you read his mm. writings on this subject. Mm. Very deep, yes. But um, it is understandable even at a, at a simple level that if we have not developed a habit of thinking clean, of thinking welfare, of thinking honesty and honestly, we're not likely to understand the beauty and the depth of how nature works because nature works true to its principles. Whenever there's going to be condensation of moisture in the clouds up there, it is going to form drops and, it, and gravity will pull it down in the form of rain. 
this you cannot be dishonest with. Nature will not be dishonest with itself. Mm. Nature mm. is honest and truthful. Mm. And that is why the more truthful we are, our understanding of science is improved and understanding of natural principles is improved. And again, like I say, extend it, our understanding of where nature or originates from and the creator of nature improves. Right. So to my mind, that is why truthfulness and honesty of mind is a basis of receiving revelation from the creator. Hmm. Without honesty, without uh, clarity of mind in all that you do in your life, you are not likely to receive revelations. Sure. Right. So this right. this is how I understand the relationship, but this is how it's been described by Promised Messiah, Salam. Absolutely. Uh, the other question that I had um, was around uh, a subject which is often talked about in the context of Muslims in in general, in this country and and others uh, in Europe as well, which is integration. Uh, what do you understand by? Uh, by the principle of integration and how uh, do you think we uh, as Ahmadis or the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community here in the UK have been able to integrate? Do you think activities like the one that we're talking about this morning, which is the cleanup exercise, is um, is how integration uh, needs to be and is, is one way to integrate? I think it is. And I think one of our guest speakers mentioned this point too. Yeah. And I think uh, he's right in saying this, and you're right in suggesting it. Um, yes, it is a sad aspect uh, that you come across sometimes by the by the right-wing factions of society, put mm. it that way, or people who are not very comfortable with having other ethnicities or different religious people uh, in their country mm. and there are people like that everywhere in the world sure. and so we have them in the UK as well um, and and one of the criticisms they make towards Muslims is that the Muslims don't integrate and the reasons they gave is for example that we may dress in a slightly different way mm. and yes Muslim men and women don't wear revealing or body showing clothes because mm. it's a contradiction to our teachings and we believe that there is benefit to society in dressing up and behaving modestly. modestly yeah. So similarly another criticism is that we may not socialize in the same way. Mm. We, we would avoid alcohol or those kind of parties and free mix up between genders. Mm. Again the same reason because we believe that that is damaging to society and our religion prevents any behavior that damages to society. So, in, but having said that, we pursue education. Mm. We try to teach our members to be law-abiding. We, in fact, participate in community build-up and community service uh, activities like the New Year street cleaning that we mm. are discussing today. Mm. Uh, we have factions like Humanity First who would go out and help when there's floods or natural disasters in this country or anywhere in the world, and we would serve the people. Right. We have food banks running. Right. Um, we uh, support the local charities. We support local charities. Our charity walks are well known to mm. contribute to tens of local charities in mm. UK. So in hundreds of thousands of, of pounds. Exactly, hundreds mm. of thousands of pounds every year. Right. So this is what we think is integration. Mm. 
We believe in serving the country where we live and, and we serve our neighbors. Through the COVID, we had special programs. In fact, interesting example that the even before these um, what is the face masks and the protective uh, equipment mm. became public right. it was the amadi women who saw face masks with their hands right. in thousands and mm. distributed to hospitals first and then to neighborhoods mm. even before the government made it available mm. this mm. is integration for us mm. yeah beautiful but absolutely yeah this is this is what integration really means to us uh, integration to us is 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 how uh, we serve the local community how we, we get involved in in the benefit of local community yes we we don't socialize in the same manner yes we don't uh, we may not uh, dress up uh, uh, but but you know isn't is isn't these two things also about uh, freedom of choice i mean if it's a free society then surely we shouldn't be criticized uh, for this everybody should have a right to uh, to way they they want to dress or to whatever they want to eat or drink for that matter yeah you are absolutely right i mean these days there are winters and i see so many women and men covering their heads with hats and scarves mm. now and some of them even their mouths and noses to keep them warm right and just the eyes showing now if a muslim woman does it they mm. say this is inappropriate and some countries rest- put restrictions on it mm. but here for weather reasons their men and women are doing it and there's no restriction so there is a bit of a paradox there is a bit of a bias mm. about the islamic teachings and i think that we need to be once again fair and open minded and work cohesively as members of the society mm. as muslims we must respect a christian or a jewish or a hindu or a sikh's choice the way they want to do their religious rituals right. this is obligatory on us a quranic teaching but we expect to be dealt with in the same way correct absolutely and i i guess that's it's only it's only just that uh, uh, that it is done that way um and and equally uh, if you think about it um uh, from a societal perspective you know everybody uh, if a vegan for example um is it, it, it's almost fashionable these days to be to be vegan and if a vegan decides to give up alcohol you know that would be considered um, almost in uh, and uh, whereas if a, if a muslims uh, a muslim decides not to drink in a social event that uh, you know people in a lot of cases people might not say anything uh, to the face but you know you're you're almost you can see it in in the other person's eyes and you're almost looked down upon and and almost considered antisocial and and probably backward as well um for uh, to say that sorry i'm not i'm not able to drink and and then some people would ask you is that for religious reason really or is that for for some health reason uh, you know in, in essence meaning that it's okay to uh, not to drink for health reasons but it's not okay to mm. <laughs> to give up for uh, religious reasons yes um, i i think that the a phase of european history probably explains this at least to my mind and that is that in europe they went through a period of a medieval europe where they did not have the scientific knowledge mm. they were acquiring it slowly and gradually through the arabs and they were learning arabic and going and bringing up empirical sciences back to europe which was a very positive thing that the european scientists and intellectuals were doing and helping their local systems to develop mm. and they ultimately did so very positive but at the same time the religious clergy was involved in a lot of dogma mm. 
right. in the church, different types of churches. Mm. So you, you and I know even until recently in Ireland how Catholics and Protestants see very difficult to find it very difficult to get together with yeah. each other and you know those kind of differences. So uh, an average European has this found this choice to make that religion is being presented in an unscientific way. Mm, irrational way. Irrational way. That's a good way to put it. Uh, while science is giving us the development, the industry, the economic prosperity and better standards of living. So they went, they took their choice and a very obvious choice they did. But the issue, the, the point I'm making is that it's how religion is being presented to a population. If we focus on irrationality, uh, then it becomes difficult for them to recognize the beauty of religion. Thank you very much. 8 o'clock news is next. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. This morning, we're talking about um, the work that is being done by the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association all across the country, cleaning up streets on the New Year's Day um, and many other initiatives that are undertaken for the welfare of mankind by the MD Muslim Youth Association. Uh, let's now go to our last guest for this segment, and that is Malvi Abdul Hamid Saviri, uh, who is joining us all the way from Ghana. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for, for joining us this morning. Can I ask what time is it in Ghana right now? Actually, it's now 8, 8 a.m. Oh, it's the same time as us. All right, you're in the same time zone. Okay, so, right, okay. Have you had your morning coffee? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Excellent, right. So, uh, so tell us about uh, how did the Ghana branch of uh, the Amdi Muslim community um, celebrate their new year? Uh, did you also clean up any streets? Did you, were you able to do any, any uh, social work like that? Sure. Uh, interestingly, the Ghana branch of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community began the New Year celebration with international, let me say, national tahajjud. That is a pre-dawn prayer as a uniform for prayer, seeking for peace and reconciliation for the whole world. In addition to that, after the pre-dawn prayer, Fajr dance morning prayer was observed. After that, we had a general cleaning up exercise in all parts of Ghana particularly on various wing organizations. That's women wing organization, the youth, and also the Ansarullah. All these people engage in humanitarian works, particularly clean the streets and gutters, and also uh, various mocks where we pray and worship our Creator. So had you all gathered in the mosque first and then spread out in the streets? Is that how the program developed? Exactly. In various mocks and various centers, we have various jamaats in Ghana. So numerous jamaat, they will have to converge in their various masajid, their various mocks. After that, they disperse and pass themselves into groups where some clean the mocks, some go onto the streets and clean the streets and the gutters as well. And what is the driving force behind this work that you carry out? Actually, the driving force behind what we carry out is the teachings of the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. Similarly, the Promised Messiah al-Islam, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has also enlightened us with the importance of cleanliness. So this has been our drive. We move out, we clean. And one thing is that 
in the night of the new year, or let me say before the new year, that was on the 31st of December, people come around floating, enjoying, drinking, and putting toffees, wrappers everywhere in the community. So this one pushes the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to ensure that they clean, I mean, they clean the city during the new year. So that when people begin work on second day of the new year, there wouldn't be anything like a uh, misappropriation of cleanliness in the society. And do you have uh, all age groups join you in this work? Exactly. We have all age groups and most uh, importantly, youth children at the age of 15, 18, they join. And even younger ones join old people uh, from the Ansar allowing organization and also from the legendary aspect as well. They all engage in this meritorious and blessed, uh, let me say, uh, task. Sounds like a very beautiful and communal activity that uh, helped you feel energized for the New Year cleanup. Besides yeah. the street cleaning, do you, does your community, Ahmadiyya community in Ghana, do other humanitarian works? Exactly. Uh, actually, in the whole year, looking at uh, the teachings of Islam, the Holy Prophet and the Promised Messiah Islam, uh, Muslims are entreated to show mercy and kindness to those who are less privileged. And for that matter, within this new year, after our tahajjud, and even before the end of the year, various jamaat in Ghana go to various places like the orphanages, like the home of the disabled, homes of the aged, and other places, for instance, the prisons. They go there and make sure they give donations. Sometimes they go to remote areas like villages and donate clothes and partially used clothes for them to also enjoy a normal life. And how do you... In, in, Sorry, go on, please. Okay. In addition to that, uh, there is something which has been organized by some of the Khudam in various places where after the cleanup and the salat, they engage in other games and also they engage in food making and they enjoy. So it has been a source of, I mean, a merriment in the first year of in the first day of the year. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. But how do you uh, gather these uh, these things that you distribute, the clothes and the food and the gifts? Okay. Uh, actually, we, we, give, we send a circular to all members of the community that on this day we will be making such humanitarian works. So for that matter, anyone who is having a, a partially used cloth, anyone who is having a partially used shoe or kambu or any footwear, anything nice to be presented, we are to submit them. Some come with food like rice in their bags, oil and drinks, some come with clothes and many more. So these are, I mean, these are the ways through which we gather these things. So we give appointed time. For instance, tomorrow we'll be doing this project. Today, by the end of the evening, everyone is supposed to bring his or her donation so that we can disperse and share to the various places who are needed. So it looks like the community joins hand with compassion for the needy and bring things together. Is that sure. right? Sure. sure. Right. And... How do these activities embody your Ahmadiyya Muslim community's values for service to humanity? Actually, as a result of these humanitarian works, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Ghana has gained a famous name and uh, it has become known by many people because of its humanitarian activities. For instance, uh, we had a dam spillage 
in Ghana getting to the end of the year. And my dear Muslim community made donations, tons of donations to people, not only to Ahmadi members, but rather to even people who are not Ahmadis, people who are Christians and people who are even pagans. So this one made them like the Jamaat Ahmadiyya and they said that no, this community is in fact having a beautiful thinking and this community in fact is from God the Almighty. Mm. Is that a rooster doing the morning call behind you? Pardon? Is that a, a, a chicken making the morning sound? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, it's please. very interesting to hear this. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> but you you know, uh, Malvi Sabiri Sahab, uh, I have been to Ghana a couple of times and I know that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has hospitals around the country and schools and uh, that they're doing uh, uh, excellent work looking after the community. And this work is carried out for all people, irrespective of whatever religion or ethnicity they may belong to. So sure. I respect the efforts of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that they're carrying out in Ghana. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very, very much uh, for joining us uh, all the way from uh, from Ghana. Uh, have a lovely day. Um, have a lovely year. May peace with, be with you and uh, all the best to you and your chickens. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings uh, of Allah be upon me. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it just gives a very exotic feeling of um, of actually some talking to somebody all the way in Africa uh, yes. when you hear these, uh, uh, these sounds uh, in the background. That is right. Uh, right. Okay. Um, we are talking about... Um, um, uh, about service to mankind, about uh, integration, about, uh, you know, this theme of how the Muslims actually not only celebrate the new year, but also um, actually play a very positive role in supporting the communities, in helping, uh, in terms of uh, helping out with, with these cleanup exercises, uh, as well as many other things that we talked about, you know, supporting the charities, supporting local food clubs, um, and uh, and uh, many other ways that uh, uh, all members of the association, I should add, um, actually support uh, their local communities. The Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Association are very active in that uh, department as well. Ahmadiyya Muslims Elders Association, they do, uh, as we talked about, they conduct charity walks um, and they collect uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds which are then distributed to UK charities as well and, and also does Amdiya Muslim Youth Association, as we were talking about. Um, if I can ask you uh, to uh, to sort of um, close this uh, this topic, why is why do we do this? Why is it important for for Amdi Muslims uh, to do this? Is this um, is this really our calling? Or is this something that we um, uh, we do to maybe show to others that uh, you know, here we are, and we want to announce to the world that uh, we want to, for example, um, look here, we're doing this good work. Um, you know, the fundamental reason why charitable work is prescribed for Muslims in the Holy Quran is the principle or the teaching of the unity of Godhood. So we believe as Muslims that there is only one being that is the creator of 
everything that exists in the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a very big space, and it's even difficult for a human being to comprehend how big the universe and the creation is, but condense it to our planet. All human beings are the creation from the same creator. Whether it's a white British Caucasian or somebody in Africa or South America or Asia, whatever. Mm. Whatever religion, whatever language they speak, whatever dress they wear, from the same creator. Mm. So our lives are to be lived recognizing this principle that the fellow human beings are our brothers and sisters. Now, if my brother or my sister was unwell at home, would I not go out and bring medicine or try to advise something good for my sister? In the same way, if a brother or sister is unwell in another country, and if for some reason that country does not have enough infrastructure, it becomes my religious responsibility as a Muslim to do something that is at least within my resources to rectify their problem or help them in any way. This is how our Khalifa of the current time guides us repeatedly. May Allah be his helper. And this is why we have these different types of programs and notions that you have given us examples of. So the unity of Godhood means oneness of mankind, means all of us need to work for the betterment of each other. And frankly speaking, it is not rocket science. The betterment or the progress of the world and solution to a lot of problems that we are facing in the world depends on recognizing this principle. The sooner the world accepts this, the quicker the peace will come on earth, the quicker there will be mutual progress, we will be able to eradicate poverty and hunger and uh, these kind of problems. And uh, we will also be more environment friendly because the planet Earth is also from the same creator. Mm -hmm. So we owe our responsibility. Now that's one thing. Now, one other reason that is behind this, and that is one of the titles given to the... Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be on him, in the Quran is that he is Ramatul Alameen, means he is mercy for all mankind. Right. Now, if we believe to be his followers, and we do, then it is our responsibility as his servants and his followers to serve mankind. Mm. Because the Prophet Muhammad teaches us to live to serve mankind. Right. And that is why we see these examples that our young, our children find dignity in labor. One of our guests explained this, what Vakari Amal means. Mm. We are taught this right from young. You know, you and I, when we were at Fal and Khuddam, we used to do these uh, activities. Yeah, we would go and clean streets, clean our mosques, all those things. Yeah. So those are the two driving forces behind. So essentially what you're saying is that this is really our duty, a sense of duty and our and indeed our duty to to do this um, in our local communities in it, to affect our the community around us, to affect the people around us positively uh, rather than doing it as um, uh, as something that we want to show to other people that hey listen we are we're so good or we're, we're doing this uh, this great activity it's really it's really at the core of who we are and it should be. 
Yeah. If 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 someone does not have it, then they should try to develop it in themselves. That's our duty. Right. You're right. I think this this probably also will be a good uh, juncture to talk about the concept of neighbors in Islam. Um, how can you explain how the concept of neighbors and neighborhood is defined in Islam? Is it just confined to the people that uh, are living, you know, uh, in front of you or uh, or next to you, or is it is it something wider? Um, the I'm the, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu may peace be on him, uh, mentioned that neighborhood is not just confined to the houses whose walls are next to you. Right. It is your vicinity. Hmm. But then it is also extended in certain situations to even further uh, people who are in different circumstances related to you or in connection with you. If you are traveling, people who are sitting in the same transport, the same train, same airplane are your neighbors. Right. If you're working, your colleagues are your neighbors. Uh, people who you know, they may live further away or drive away, but they are your neighbors because you know them, you know their circumstances. And if their circumstances are difficult, it, they become part of that responsibility circle of yours to look after them, provide something if they need, and you can provide it, or at least give them attention and care and compassion. So the concept of neighborhood is expanded through this interpretation of the Islamic teaching of caring for the neighbors. Right. So, and, and essentially, can we then also extend it to countries? Uh, all the countries that are, that are around you are also your neighbors, and therefore you're supposed to take care of the countries around you. Yes, I, I think that's a very reasonable way to look at it, and it is true. I mean, neighboring countries should make alliances. Um, mm. there, there are examples of neighboring countries having made alliances. And yes, the, the examples are uh, here, right here in this continent as well, although we've broken off. Yes, although <laughs> we that. have unfortunately, yes. I think unfortunately, broken off. But uh, yeah, that is true. Alliances help. They they reduce the chance of conflict. They allow mutual trade, uh, exchange of ideas, scientific programs, and all those kind of things. Correct. Thank you very, very much uh, for that, uh, Dr. Shaquille. And with that, we will end this topic and move swiftly on to the second topic of the morning, which is about the World Day of War Orphans. So in this segment, we will talk about the, um, the orphans and... Um, uh, and, and the significance of this day. And I think it's a, it's, it's a good reminder that this day has actually come because uh, as we were talking about earlier in the program, uh, thousands of children actually have been left orphan as a result of the war in, um, uh, in Gaza at the moment. And I, and I dare say I'm sure in, uh, in Ukraine and Russia um, as well, uh, as is the case in Gaza and Israel. So um, war is, um, is something which, uh, which brings about destruction. Uh, and I think uh, this, uh, this day is a very timely reminder that this is, um, that's, uh, this is something that we need to talk about. So the World Day of War Orphans was founded by a French, organizations, French organization, SOS Enfants uh, on Distrasi, giving an opportunity to communities for them to address the sad state of orphans. It is uh, to raise awareness of children that were made orphans in the war. It is held on the 6th of January every year to raise awareness on the psychological, social, and physical obstacles 
that surfaced in their lives. UNICEF defines an orphan as someone under 18 who has lost one or both parents by any cause of death. The orphanage uh, started in, um, uh, an orphanage, I should say, uh, started in 400 AD by the Romans um, uh, as early as, as 400 AD. Prescribed care for widows and orphans up to the age of 18 um, was then provided uh, around 1741. Uh, this was uh, found founded in uh, in a hospital, and uh, it being so, and it was a charitable organization. And from 1800 onwards, uh, foster care is um, uh, is something which uh, which took on. In this segment, we will obviously talk about how important it is uh, in Islam. Uh, but before we we on to we sort of go there, uh, Doctor Shakil, a very quick word on um, uh, on the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, who was himself an orphan. So maybe can you can you paint a picture of what his early years uh, were like? Um, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah. He his father had passed away when he was still in his mother's womb. Right. So before his birth. Right. And when he was born, he was with his mother, although was looked after by a nanny outside Mecca in a local village and and fed by the nanny mm-hmm. by the name of Halima uh, Raziela. And uh, when he was six, his mother passed away. Right. Then the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, as a six-year-old child, was taken on by his grandfather. Right. Uh, who also passed away after a few years. And from then on, uh, Prophet Muhammad was brought up by his uncle. And that's the household that he grew up in uh, through his youth. Right. And uh, even as a young person, it was recognized that his activities were much more solemn and um, serious compared to the typical youth of his time and his neighborhood. And he joined hands with some of the other like-minded young people, and they would go and look for people who need help and help them, mm-hmm. rather than just be busy in doing their own recreation and that kind of stuff. And as soon as he reached a little bit of independence, he was uh, um, given the responsibility to take some of the animals for grazing outside the fields of Mecca. And that's when he learned the and developed the practice of contemplation while being alone. Right. And that made him then pick up this cave of Hira mm. in a nearby mountain where he would spend a lot of time just contemplating about the world, the purposefulness of life mm. and where it originated from. And whatever his understanding of God and religion was at that time, mm. pre-revelation of the Holy Quran. Right. So, a pretty difficult childhood. And I guess that also sheds light on um, uh, on, on why, uh, you know, this is this is something which is so close to um, uh, all Muslims' heart, that the treatment of orphans, the um, uh, the help that uh, that needs to be given uh, to every orphan as well, and um, and the Holy Prophet himself also great uh, uh, laid great emphasis on it. And there is actually mention of uh, of this in the Holy Quran as well. Um, that you know, you sh- and and that's something that uh, I think we'll return to. 
Let's uh, go down straight to our uh, guest for uh, this segment, who is Chris Paluski. Uh, Chris Paluski is currently the multi-country response director of World Visions, U- Ukraine crisis response, uh, and he covers Ukraine, Romania, Moldova, and Georgia. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Nice to nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about how uh, you know this um, this organization actually came into being, uh, the World Vision Organization. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, again, my name is Chris Polusky, and I'm coming to you from Kiev today. Right. And I oversee the Ukraine Crisis Response, and World Vision been around for approximately seventy years. It was started by a man of faith named Bob Pierce, and he saw that uh, children were in need, and he was in Korea. So he started with one child, helping out one child, and that work spread throughout Asia, throughout Africa, Latin America, the Balkans. And uh, the goal was to, to make the lives of uh, children better. And as people of faith, we wanted to be motivated by our faith to do that. So um, right now, World Vision is in approximately 100 countries, and uh, we're responding to emergencies in some of those countries, but we're also doing development work in those countries too to make children's lives better. So looking at the figures, it's staggering to see how many children across the world are in need. Uh, why do you think this is the case and what kind of factors have risen to this uh, global difficulty? That's a great, great question. So I, I don't think we've ever seen so many refugees or internally displaced people um, throughout history. This is the, the, the largest moment in time. And in my, my area of the world, in the Ukraine crisis response, We've got like 21 million people that are affected in Ukraine, in and around Ukraine, by this crisis. So this is a country of 40-some million people, and many of those have had to flee, or many of these are displaced inside of the country. Um, Also, 17 million people are in need inside Ukraine itself. So I I think we see with so many crises, so many wars, that uh, children and families are displaced, but uh, of course, children are the most vulnerable and they face the biggest brunt from uh, conflict across the globe. And right now we're seeing a lot of conflict. Yes, and I, I suppose children's vulnerabilities also in the sense that they, are, they find it hard to make sense of this difficulty and they carry this memory in their growing up years and perhaps it then affects how they grow up to be, be adults. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the reasons that we're here. So World Vision, we're a Christian international relief and development organization. We do primarily relief in this area. And we, we put together a strategy at the beginning of this crisis. So we were not inside of Ukraine at the beginning of this, uh, this war, um, but we had been in some of the surrounding countries. So we've been in Romania for 30 years. We've been in um, Georgia for decades. And we're able to use that as a springboard to um, meet the needs of refugees, so people that were fleeing from the, the, the conflict. And then we were able to go into side of Moldova and then side of Ukraine itself, focusing on children's needs. And our strategy was that, you know, as a child-focused organization, we wanted to make sure that children were well protected and taken care of. So we did child protection programming. We've been doing education programming. We've been doing psychosocial programming and also making sure that their basic needs are being met. But you're right, the impact physically on children, it's uh, extreme, and also mentally, it's, it's quite hard on them. So we've been running really great programs that have helped children to process this, this trauma that they're going through right now. 
It, it's admirable the way you describe your work, and I really respect you for carrying this out. Tell us that we've just uh, celebrated World Day of War Orphans. Now, how important do you think is to raise awareness of these kind of issues, particularly the plight of war orphans, and how does your organization carry that out? Sure. World, World Vision is a child-focused organization, so we are always focused on kids, especially the most vulnerable. And they could be war orphans, and we've seen war orphans here inside of Ukraine and around. And even more so, I think we've seen like single parents, so mothers that have had to flee from different parts of the country. Maybe they've lost their husband. Maybe they had to run from war. And, and kids have faced, again, the largest brunt of this. So we think it's incredibly important that people become aware of the plight of children around the world in conflict and that they are the most vulnerable and they shouldn't be placed in these situations. And we want to get people involved and we want to have people do something locally, internationally, but we just ask that they would do something for children. I mean, there's so many disagreements across the globe today, but I think one of the things that the majority of us can agree, agree upon is that children should be safe, loved, and connected. And uh, that's why we're here. And that's why uh, days like World Orphan Day are so important. Yes, you're absolutely right. At least that's one thing we can all agree upon, that we need to help these uh, the people in such difficulties, particularly children. Um, you've said that you would want people to do something within their own uh, vicinity of whatever magnitude they can. What is it that you think our listeners could do to help your organization or similar kind of work? Sure. I, uh, I would say look around locally. So if people are interested in refugees, so if they're wanting to know, you know how they can help out with refugees, well, I know that in many places across the globe and across Europe, UK, um, US, Australia, there are refugees being resettled. Get involved. Find out about these refugee resettlement agencies and see how you can help out. Can you help to resettle a family? Can you help an individual go to appointments? Or internationally, like World Vision, there are many organizations that are focused on helping the most vulnerable, especially children. I would say take a look. Go online. Find out who's doing what. But check out groups like World Vision, like worldvision.org.uk. You can go on there and find out about the work we're doing across the globe with vulnerable children. So, I, I, you know, it, again, it could be helping that family to get resettled in your own community, or it could be donating money, it could be donating time, but I would say get involved. Um, that's so important because we're focused on kids. And, and without people, let's, if without people caring, without people getting involved, nothing's gonna change. But I think even with that first step, if people are willing to take that first step, we can make a huge impact on vulnerable children. Hmm. That's very helpful, um, encouraging words for people to feel that they can contribute in, in the ways you've suggested. Uh, my next question is about the war orphans being very vulnerable and more vulnerable than children with parents. And World Vision was instrumental in getting support over to the Romanian orphans in the 90s. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did, your organization did in those times and how things have progressed? Sure. That's actually how we started it in Romania. So 30 some years ago in Romania, they used to have huge institutions and they were orphanages and there were children that were just, they just, they stayed there and they weren't taken care of. They weren't loved. They weren't connected. Um, and so World Vision worked to remove those children from orphanages and put them in families or small group homes where they could feel safe, loved, and connected. 
And so that work started there and that work has evolved through the years. World Vision believes that families should stay together whenever possible. So we do development work and across the globe so families aren't disconnected from one another. So I'll give an example in Africa somewhere. Um, you know, sometimes parents have to leave to get employment. Well, if we can help people to find employment or start uh, um, companies or whatnot in their own communities, they're able to stay and keep their families together. So World Vision would be supportive of that. Um, if you look at even some of the work that we're doing here inside of Ukraine, World Vision is trying to keep families together whenever possible. So we are doing the child protection, the education, um, you know, winterization, but we are also starting economic recovery in some parts of the, the country where it's possible because people want to, to stay in their communities when possible and get their businesses started so they can keep their families together. So our, I think our work has evolved from that, you know, we were removing children from orphanages and making sure that they were safe, loved, and connected. Across the globe, we've seen a trend that, you know, orphanages are a, a dying trend, which I think is a good thing. Um, but we are also making sure that they are, they are connected and uh, people have options. I would say parents have options to take care of their, their, their children. And I think that's been an evolution where things were done to people. Historically, now we are doing things with them, and it's actually led by the people that we are serving. And does your organization have any links with the SOS villages? Um, you know, we coordinate with them. There's, uh, there's, these, there's groups with inside of Ukraine. And we're led by UN OCHA, which is this UN organization. And there's lots of coordination between the international NGOs and local NGOs. So um, I don't know them directly, but there are many NGOs in, in and around Ukraine right now, and I've, I've heard that they are, they are doing work um, around this area. Right. And lastly, because you're in Kiev at the moment and some of your workers are in Ukraine, uh, security is an issue. I hope and pray that you keep safe in these difficult times. How, how, how do you manage this difficulty when active war is going on? So we have different security protocols and we actually have security managers and we go through security training and it's not just for us. So there's world vision, you know, we have our, our security protocols. I've got a security manager in the office and she monitors where we can go and what we can't do. Uh, I've also got a security director and he tells us, you know, here's what's happening. Um, we've got bunkers and all, all of our offices. In fact, I spent most of this morning in a bunker. We had a missile alarm and actually missile attack across the country this morning. So we spent most of the morning inside of bunkers, um, but we also train our partners. So we, we do everything possible to keep our, our staff safe, but we also train our partners. So that's how World Vision implements many of our programs inside of Ukraine. We've got 30 some partners across the response and we've been training them everything from, you know, CPR on, you know, uh, missile awareness to finding, you know, the, the local um, bunker and what's the best place and what are the best protocols to observe during uh, attacks. And so World Vision, I think we've got the, the background, the history, and we're, we are fortunate enough that we have the internal, I'd say, muscle to help to train and keep our staff as safe as possible. You're never totally safe, but as safe as possible. And we adhere to security protocols. And we also work closely with our, our local partners so that they have that knowledge. So we're sharing knowledge with them mm. too. Yes. Um... Okay. Uh, um, really, I, I just want to pray that God bless you for the good work that you're doing for the, the war orphans okay. and, and those vulnerable people, despite all these risks.
Absolutely. Uh, Chris, uh, we know that uh, you're responsible for um, uh, countries in Eastern Europe. Um, do you know if uh, you have a chapter um, which is actually helping um, uh, children or orphans in Gaza? Um, World Vision works throughout the Middle East. So mm-hmm. we are in Lebanon. We are in, um, I believe, West Bank. We are in, gosh, the, the Caucasus. And I know that we work primarily with children. I mean, World Vision's been in uh, Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza. I think it's Jerusalem, Gaza for the past 30, 20, 30 years. And I know that we are focused on children. But I don't know the details. I can get back to you on that one. Sure. No, that's uh, that's perfectly understandable. But, you know, just to maybe add some context uh, for our listeners, you are uh, in an active war zone at the moment. How challenging it is for you to be able to do what uh, the great work that you're doing in an active war zone versus if um, uh, if there was ceasefire? Well, yeah, I mean, a good example, again, we have alarms going off all the time. We have mm-hmm. missile attacks. We spend much of our time in bunkers. So it's hard to move around. Um, I'm, I'm having some of our staff work from Kharkiv from their home today um, for the next week because uh, there's uptick in, in missile attacks. So we always keep security um, on the top of our list. So it's not always as fast as we'd like it to be. And we always have to be very flexible. Um, so it's, it's not like easy work that you can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. We have the best intentions. We have the best plans. We have the best security protocols. But we know that we have to be flexible because things change day to day. And a great example would be that, you know, there was this uh, Novokokovka dam that was blown up Gosh, that was about six months ago in the south of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had planned on doing some work, and we had been doing some work through partners in the area. Well, we had to flex immediately. So we were contacted by partners saying, we are picking people out of the water right now. Can you please help us with some funding so we can get uh, petrol for our, our boat motors and uh, just basic transport? We said, yes, we are able to help out. So we had to change, we had to pivot very quickly, and we had vetted partners that we've been training and working with for actually a, a year at that point in time. And we knew that they could do the job and they knew, they knew what the job was. So yeah, I would say it's having the right training, having the right processes and procedures in place, um, but being flexible is so key in a conflict zone. And you just have to know that it's not always going to go according to plan. Chris, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, very enlightening. Um, and as my colleague mentioned, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers with you for the great, excellent work and much needed. And um, and, and really, uh, you know, uh, a heart uh, go out to all the children who have actually been orphaned in all these wars and conflicts. And, uh, and thank you for all the great work. And may Allah bless you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Uh, peace be with you. Have a good day and the rest of the year to you as well. So that was Chris uh, Baliski, who is currently the multi-country response director of World Vision's Ukraine crisis response uh, covering Ukraine, Romania, Moldova and uh, and Georgia. Talking to us about uh, the excellent work that, uh, uh, that his uh, department, his organization actually is doing in those countries, but also um, elsewhere in uh, in the Middle East as well in Gaza. Uh, just to sort of uh, paint a picture of what actually is going on in uh, in Gaza at the moment, um, I'd like to play a, a short clip of a press conference that was given a few days ago by the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Mr. Antonio Guterres, um, and he gave uh, he laid the 
uh, he, he drew up a picture of uh, what it is like at the moment for children, uh, especially in um, Gaza at the moment. Let's listen in. In the north, they are barely operational. One colleague described the deathly silence of a hospital with no medication or treatment for its sick and injured patients. According to the World Food Programme, widespread famine looms. More than half a million people, a quarter of the population, are facing what experts classify as catastrophic levels of hunger. Four out of five of the angriest people anywhere in the world are in Gaza. And clean water is at a trickle. UNICEF found that displaced children in the South have access to just 10% of the water they need. In these desperate conditions, it is little wonder that many people cannot wait for humanitarian distributions and are grabbing whatever they can from aid trucks. As I warned, public order is at risk of breaking down. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world, people who have seen everything, tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. Israel began its military operation in response to the horrific terror attacks launched by Hamas on 7 October. And nothing can possibly justify those attacks or the brutal abduction of some 250 hostages. And I repeat my call for all remaining hostages to be released immediately and unconditionally. And nothing can justify the continued fire of rockets from Gaza at civilian targets in Israel or the use of civilians as human shields. But at the same time, these violations of international humanitarian law can never justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people and they do not free Israel from its own obligations under international law. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, many people are measuring the effectiveness of the humanitarian operation in Gaza based on the number of trucks from the Egyptian Red Crescent, the UN and other partners that are allowed to unload aid across the border. This is a mistake. The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. An effective aid operation in Gaza requires security, staff who can work in safety, logistical capacity, and the resumption of commercial activity. These four elements do not exist. First, security. We are providing aid in a war zone. The intense Israeli bombardment and active combat in densely populated urban areas throughout Gaza threaten the lives of civilians and humanitarian aid workers alike. We waited 71 days for Israel finally to allow aid to enter Gaza via the Kerem Shalom crossing. And the crossing was then hit while eight trucks were in the area. Second, the humanitarian operation requires staff who can live and work in safety. 
136 of our colleagues in Gaza have been killed in 75 days, something we have never seen in the history of the United Nations. Nowhere is safe in Gaza. I honor the women and men who have made the ultimate sacrifice, and I pay tribute to the thousands of humanitarian aid workers who are risking their health and lives in Gaza even as I speak. Most of our staff have been forced from their homes. All of them spend hours each day simply struggling to survive and to support their families. It is a miracle that they have been able to continue working under these conditions. And yet, those same colleagues are expanding humanitarian operations in southern Gaza to support people living there, while trying to assist the flood of displaced people who arrive from the north with nothing. And they are currently providing aid in Rafa, Western Canyonis, Deir el-Bela, and Nuzerat in the south, and doing their best to reach the north despite huge challenges, namely security. In these appalling conditions, they can only meet a fraction of the needs. Third, logistics. Every truck that arrives at Karem Shalom and Rafa must be unloaded and its cargo reloaded for distribution across Gaza. We ourselves have a limited and insufficient number of trucks available for these. Many of our vehicles and trucks were destroyed or left behind following our forced hurried evacuation from the north. But the Israeli authorities have not allowed any additional trucks to operate in Gaza. And this is massively hampering the aid operation. And delivering in the north is extremely dangerous due to active conflict, unexploded ordnance, and heavily damaged roads. Everywhere, frequent communication blackouts make it virtually impossible to coordinate the distribution of aid and to let people know how to access it. And fourth and finally, the resumption of commercial activities is essential. Shelves are empty, wallets are empty, stomachs are empty, just when bakeries operating in the whole of Gaza. And I urge the Israeli authorities to lift restrictions on commercial activity immediately. We are ready to scale up our cash grant support to vulnerable families, the most effective form of humanitarian aid. But in Gaza, there is very little to buy. So, ladies and gentlemen of the media, in the circumstances I've just described, a humanitarian ceasefire is the only way to begin to meet the desperate needs of people in Gaza and end their ongoing nightmare. I hope that today's Security Council resolution may help that finally to happen. But much more is needed immediately. Looking at the longer term, I'm extremely disappointed by comment by senior Israeli officials that put the two-state solution into question. As difficult as it might appear today, the two-state solution in line with UN resolutions, international law and previous agreements is the only path to sustainable peace. Any suggestion otherwise denies human rights, dignity and hope to the Palestinian people, fueling rage that reverberates far beyond Gaza. It also denies a safe future for Israel. 
the spillover is already happening. The occupied West Bank is at boiling point. Daily exchanges of fire across the blue line between Lebanon and Israel pose a grave risk to regional stability. Attacks and threats to shipping on the Red Sea by the Houthis in Yemen are impacting shipping with the potential to affect the global supply chains. And beyond the immediate region, the conflict is polarizing communities, feeding hate speech and fueling extremism. All this poses a significant and growing threat to global peace and security. As the conflict intensifies and the horror grows, we will continue to do our part. We will not give up. But at the same time, it is imperative that international communities speak with one voice for peace, for the protection of civilians, for an end to suffering, and for a commitment to the two-state solution backed with action. So that was uh, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who was um, talking about um, uh, the situation in Gaza, what needs to be done, uh, how important the ceasefire is, what is the current situation of refugees and, and children and orphans there, and um, uh, what the world needs to do, which is absolutely to call for an immediate ceasefire. Um, during the news break, um, uh, Dr. Shakil, you were um, uh, you were talking about um, the peace conference, um, which was something that was initiated by the current head of the AMD Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. Um, and uh, we've had um, a number of uh, peace conferences, I think 15 or 16. Uh, 15. 15 yeah. um, over the last uh, 15 or, or probably 16, 17 years. I think we didn't hold two during the COVID crisis. Otherwise, it's a, it's an annual event and it's a flagship event of the MD Muslim community in which His Holiness actually um, uh, delivers the keynote address. Um, and and uh, you were mentioning about um, uh, the importance that uh, he is given to children and orphans uh, there as well. Uh, can you talk us through? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Like you say, it's an annual event um, where the people from different backgrounds attend in uh, hundreds. We've, uh, I think, more than a thousand people actually attend each event now. Um, they're politicians, educationalists and um, scholars and uh, military people, so all sorts uh, and different faiths. And one of the parts of that event is awarding the Ahmadiyya Muslim Peace Prize to an organization or an individual who has contributed immensely for the betterment of mankind in one way or another. Right. So, or to promotion of peace or mm -hmm. bringing peace or physically doing something about it. Mm -hmm. And out of those 15 awards that have been given since 2009, I was looking, seven were awarded to individuals or organizations that had to do with the welfare of children or orphanage, orphans. So SOS Children Villages has been one. Satar Edi, who runs a charity that looks at orphanages, was another one. Sindhautai Sapkal, uh, an Indian-based organization. One of the UK-based was Magnus McFarlane Barrow. Um, and then the Russian pediatric surgeon Leonid Mikhailovich Roshal, and his work uh, with the International Charity Fund to help children in disasters and wars. Right. Um, 
an Iraqi lady who has a lot of efforts for the child refugees in different conflict areas, and another Adi Patricia Roche, an Irish um, charity worker uh, who also focused on Chernobyl children project intervention. So they have all won in different years mm. the Ahmadiyya Muslim Peace Prize from His Holiness. Absolutely. So over a number of years, you know, yes. His Holiness has actually um, given these awards out to uh, to orphanages or, or people um, helping the orphans. Correct. Um, well, that, uh, that uh, does uh, uh, shed some light on uh, how important uh, uh, this is in, in Islam. Uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, also gave uh, a huge importance to taking care of the orphans. He once said that um, by joining his index and middle finger uh, together, he said that uh, he who takes care of orphans shall be close to him in heavens as these two fingers are. And he also said that um, those who don't give rights to orphans and widows will incur the wrath of uh, Allah. Let me close the show uh, by quoting a verse of uh, the Holy Quran. This is from chapter 89 and verses 18 and 19, in which Allah says, Nay, but you honor not the orphan and you urge not one another to feed the poor. And that is, um, again, how important much importance Islam uh, gives to um, to orphans and the poor. Thank you very much for joining us. That was our show uh, for this morning. I must thank our producer, Faiza Chima, our, um, our researcher, Saira Madia uh, Hassam, uh, as well as Benazir Saiba. Nine o'clock news is next.